view of the resurrection of Christ. Most of all, most all of us are already convinced of that reality. What I want to do is just look at a man's life, or at least his sentiments about his life, and how that event, the resurrection of Christ, changed him. The phrase for the morning, the phrase for the day, indeed the phrase for the rest of our life, is this. Because he lives. That's why. Because he lives. If Jesus doesn't live, if he wasn't raised from the dead, if Jesus is merely a fictional character, if Jesus is just some mythological person, then there's no sense for us to gather. There's no sense for us to be here. We could have all stayed in bed, had a nice leisurely breakfast. No reason to come here. No reason to fight the parking. No reason to sit in those soft, comfortable, easy chairs. No reason to listen, listen to me. No reason, except that he lives. He lives. He lives. That's our theme. Because he lives. I know you're probably anticipating me asking you to open to the third chapter of Romans this morning. I'm sorry to disappoint you. You're going to have to wait another week. I want you to turn with me to the 28th chapter of Matthew. We're going to look very quickly at Matthew's account of the resurrection or the events right after it. And then we're going to turn to the third chapter of Philippians and examine Paul's heart, his sentiment, because he believes that Jesus lives how he begins to view his life and indeed view this life in that perspective. Matthew writes in the 28th chapter of his gospel, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb, fully expecting to see the stone in front of it, looking for somebody to help them roll back the stone so they could go in and they could minister to the remains, they could salve the broken body of Jesus. That's what they fully expected to find. They went with that attitude. And there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb rolled back the stone and sat on it. What a picture. There's a song that a current Christian singer sings, and it talks about Satan and, and how he thinks he's won the battle, and he calls up death on the phone and wants to know if the Jew is still on ice. That's how he refers to him. And Jesus, of course, has been resurrected. And Carmen says that in his song, and this is, we don't know if this is accurate or not, but that, that the angel that came down was Gabriel because when he rolls back the stone, the soldiers who were standing there guarding the tomb to prevent his disciples from stealing his body, stealing the remains, the soldiers say, Who are you? 
And the angel says, I'm Gabriel, who are you? That grab you? <laughs> you picture that? <laughs> Here's an angel, man, says, who are you? Puny soldiers. So this angel rolls back the stone. Why? You notice that Jesus doesn't roll back the stone. Jesus is already gone. And he didn't need the stone rolled back to get out either. He vanished. He's gone. But the angel rolls back the stone so that all could go in. They could see that the tomb is empty. There is no body there. He sits on the stone. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. These guys were the equivalent of the Army Green Beret. You know that? These were a special detachment of Roman soldiers who were war-hardened. They were the equivalent of our Green Beret. These guys faint dead away at the sight of an angel. Must have been some angel. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, not like these soldiers. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. (gasps) Where is he? He has risen, just as he said. What glorious words. He has risen, just as he said. Can you imagine the electricity that went through their minds? The thoughts, the excitement, too much to grasp. He has risen. He's not here. Wow. He says, come and and see the place where he lay. Look and see, his body isn't here. And then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead, is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Now I have told you so. And so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him and clasped his feet and worshipped him. Is this true? Do we dare believe? Is this really you? What glorious wonder. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Go tell my disciples. But look, now he calls them his brothers. Tell them to go to Galilee, and there will see me. Mark includes in his gospel account of this event one more statement that I think is really just wonderful. Jesus says, Oh, and yes, tell Peter also. Peter was off fishing. He had left. He was despondent. This morning there are people in this congregation sitting here who are like Peter, who have rejected Christ, who have denied him, and in the midst of your shame and your embarrassment, felt, how could God ever forgive you? How could Jesus ever love you again? He says the same thing to you. Oh, yes, and tell Peter that I'll receive him in Galilee. Because he lives, there is forgiveness, there is reconciliation, there is healing, there is grace, there is mercy. Because he lives.
Go tell my disciples that I live. Tell them the good news. Glorious, isn't it? Now turn with me to the third chapter of Philippians. This is Paul's letter to a very precious church, the Philippian congregation. They were very close to Paul, very special to him. Because Jesus lives and because Paul is so convinced of it, he has undergone a tremendous, a very profound transformation in his life. And he writes to this church, as he says once again, for their benefit, to reassure them, to encourage them, to strengthen them, to press on. You see, there was a very real threat raising its head in the church at Philippi. They were a young church. They were a new church. They were a group of believers who Paul had gone into Philippi and evangelized the church, but was not able to stay. He had to flee for his life. And so he had to entrust this baby church into God's hands. But they grew and were strengthened in the Lord. They held firm to the teachings that Paul had shared with them. But as is often the case, the ugly head of legalism has raised itself in their midst. You see, Paul teaches that Jesus died for all men. That Jesus was the final sacrifice. Hearkening back to the the whole Jewish ritual law that for sin, atonement must be made, blood must be given, a life must be given to atone for sin, to cover men's sin. And all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament, all of those sacrifices put forth by God in the book of Leviticus, all of the commands of God pointed to that one final sacrifice where Jesus the Messiah would die for his people, would indeed die for all men. And Paul has taught so convincingly all the churches, all the missionary churches he planted. He taught that salvation is by God's grace. It's a gracious gift from God, and it's received by faith. No longer does a man have to justify himself in God's sight. No longer does a man have to keep the law in order to please God. No longer will a man's sins be counted against him if he puts his faith in Christ. Because Christ's death is efficient. is efficient to cover all men's sins, past, present, and future. Christ's death was that final sacrifice the final giving of an eternal life to deal with all the whole eternal question of sin and guilt and punishment. The Bible says that Jesus on the cross emptied God's cup of wrath upon himself. That Jesus' death is sufficient for all men, efficient for those who believe. Jesus' death is efficient for you when you put your faith in him. 
No longer then must you justify yourself for God. The great question of men throughout history is, how can a man be right with God? How can I make myself right with God? I know He's there. And men strive and strive through all manner of rituals, all manner of behavior and rule-keeping to try to make themselves right with God. God says you can't do it. It's impossible for you. God looks on man in an impossible situation. He's stuck. He's mired down. He's weak. You all know what I'm talking about. We're intimately acquainted with our imperfections, with our constant falling short and our constant failures. We know how we miss the mark. And the mark is perfection. And God looks at man in that fallen, lost condition, and he reaches down and he says, I'll make you right with me. I'll make you right. But the only basis on which I can do that is that your sin and your guilt are punished. And that's happened on the cross. I took all of your guilt and all of your sin, and I put it on Christ. He's the final atonement. He's the final sacrifice. He's the final kapur, the final covering for sin. But your faith in him and his death will be efficient for you. And all of your sins I will mark to his account, not yours. There is no big, great book in heaven for the Christian with our names in it that says, Sin, 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 black mark, black mark, black mark. Because all the black marks Jesus has borne. That means we're free. That means Jesus loves us. He, God loves us. He's brought us into a relationship with himself, something we couldn't do. See, Paul has been preaching this. Salvation by grace through faith. But you see, the flesh, men, legalism dogs true faith. It nips at its heels continuously. There's a need for the flesh to manifest itself. The flesh has this need to glory in itself, to say, look at me, look at what I can do. God, aren't you proud of me? Can you relate to that? Sure. And so these, these people who were called the Judaizers, they were people who professed to believe in Christ, but they made as a requirement of salvation their, this requirement that all men had to also adhere to the law of Moses that all men had to undergo the rite of circumcision, that sacrifices still had to be offered, that Jesus, yes, was a good man, but somehow his death wasn't sufficient. These were called the Judaizers. These were the legalists of the day, and indeed we have the legalists with us even presently in our church. There are those who demand a righteousness, but not a righteousness from God. There are those who demand that we keep the law, that we undergo all the rights as an effort to acclaim ourselves or to accredit ourselves to God. And that's what these Judaizers were doing. And Paul writes to the, this precious Philippian church, because he has risen 
Finally, my brothers, he says, here's the last word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because he's risen. If Jesus hasn't risen, there's nobody to rejoice in. Nobody. But because he has risen, Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord for what he has done on your behalf. He says, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It's a current issue. It's a problem that keeps cropping up over and over in the church. The legalists rise up and they try to take the life out of our faith. Many of you were raised in religious environments. And as you grew up, you began to see and you began to find that that your religious environment, that your religion was not producing life. It was totally irrelevant to you in your life. It didn't help you. It wasn't strengthening. You went and you sat and you sat and you sat and you listened and you listened. Nothing ever happened. Your souls weren't thrilled until the day you gave your heart to Jesus Christ. Until the day you ceased to be a religionist and you entered a relationship with Christ and He miraculously, powerfully, sovereignly entered your life and transformed you, made you different, gave you a righteousness from God, something you could never accomplish, transformed you in a way you could never transform yourself. Nobody's ever happy with who they are. Isn't that true? There's always things in our life that we see we don't like, We can't do anything about them, though we read all the positive mental attitude books in the world. (laughs) You can't outthink sin. It takes God to come in and change a man's life, change a man's heart. Religion, legalism produces death. Jesus produces life. A relationship with him produces life. Christianity is the only religion there is that you could term a religion of divine accomplishment. Every other religion in this world, every other philosophy in this world, is a religion or philosophy of human achievement. Man trying to make himself right. Man trying in some way to answer that question, how can I be right with God as I perceive him? And Christianity is the only one that says the opposite. You can't make yourself right with me. I've got to make you right with me. I've got to transform you. There's no other faith, no other philosophy, no other religion. That's what makes Christianity so special. Even Judaism is the same way. Man trying to make himself right with God by keeping the law, and you can't keep the law. It's impossible. And all the rites and all the rituals don't help. So Paul describes these people, he says, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. He's referring to the rite of circumcision. For Paul now, in his mind, circumcision has been drained of all of its meaning. The Jewish person was to be circumcised, the Jewish man was to be circumcised as a sign of, of a heart turned towards God. 
That's what the circumcision was supposed to be, but it got drained of all its meaning. And the Jews were just undergoing the rite mindlessly because the law said to be circumcised, and that was it. But it wasn't significant of an inward attitude change of a transformed life. And so Paul reduces it in his description. He says, they're just mutilators of the flesh. And indeed, in the, in the book of Galatians, he calls, he says of the Judaizers also there, he says, I wish they'd go mutilate themselves. That's a very polite term. He says, I wish they'd castrate themselves. Get rid of themselves. But these guys, they're dogs, he says. They do evil. They don't do good. They think they're doing good, but they're really doing evil. He says, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit, and we who glory in Christ Jesus. We are the true believers. We're God's people. He's talking about spiritual circumcision. He's talking about people who have their hearts changed, who God has reached in and turned them around. They've not done it to themselves. He uses that very word, circumcisions, which would signify so much to the Jew to describe the person who has had their heart changed by God, who's reached down into his life and saved him. We who worship in the Spirit, the Spirit of God. Over in the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus is dialoguing with a uh, Samaritan woman. That's astonishing to her. Here's a Jewish rabbi come up from Jerusalem who's going through Samaria of all places. And he's willing to dialogue with a woman and no less a Samaritan woman. No rabbi worth his salt would do that. He'd be unclean and impure. But you know what they're talking about? They're talking about worship. And you know what she's arguing? She's saying, well... It makes a difference where you hang your hat, right? What church you go to, what mountain you worship at. Jesus says, no, that's not the issue. I care not where you hang your hat. What I care about is that you worship in spirit and truth. And there's a day coming when all men will worship in spirit and truth. They'll neither worship in this mountain or that mountain. They'll worship in spirit and truth. No longer according to hearsay. No longer according to main, vain philosophy of men. In spirit and truth. How can a man worship in spirit? The 14th chapter of John's Gospel. He writes there, Jesus' own words. Before he leaves, he instructs his disciples, I'm going away. But when I go away, I'm going to pray and ask the Father to send to you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will live in you. And it's when the Holy Spirit lives in you that you're able to worship by the Spirit of God. True worship. Because there's a transformed life. You'll be able to worship in truth, Jesus says. He goes on and he says, we are of the circumcision, we are worshiped by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus. Do we say that? We glory in Christ Jesus? As opposed to, what else did he say? We who put no confidence in the flesh, our own efforts aren't sufficient. We're not any, any hot stuff. We don't have anything to commend ourselves to God. We don't glory in our own abilities and talents. Paul says we glory in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he saved us. 
Because he died. Because of his great work on that cross. Because he lives. Because he lives, we glory in him. He said, you kill me and I'll rise again. And he did it. He did it. Astonishing. He did it. And for that reason, we glory in him. He was the final sacrifice. He paid it all. He describes in the third chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus' words, and he describes the, an event in the life of Israel and they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years when Moses held up a, a serpent, a bronze serpent on a staff when all the Israelites were, were dying, being snake bit. And the people, the children of Israel, cried out to Moses and said, Moses, intercede with God for us. We, we, we're sorry. Ask him to forgive us and call off these serpents and save us. God instructed Moses to make this bronze serpent and hold it up on a staff. This was God's solution to their dilemma. And God said to them, if they'll look at this, I'll save them. And Jesus refers to that account and he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so all men as they look at me will be saved. Though they've been snake bit, they won't die. Isn't that exciting? We glory in Jesus, not in our own selves, not in what we can do. We glory in Christ because he lives. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul was the Jew's Jew. He was a Jew par excellence. And he gives us testimony of his Jewishness. Testimony of how he trusted in the law. Testimony of how he trusted in his Jewish heritage. Until one day, he met the risen Savior. Paul says, if any of those guys think they've got something to brag about, they need to come talk to me. I'm more of a Jew than they ever were. And if anybody should be bragging, it should be me about keeping the law, about being Jewish. Listen to Paul. Listen to his words. If you're here, sitting here this morning and you're Jewish, listen to Paul. Set aside your cultural bias because that's what it is. It's a cultural bias. Be willing for once in your life to examine Jesus' claims to be the Messiah the one final sin offering, the one final sacrifice. Set aside your bias. Examine his claims to see and to settle that issue once and for all in your life is Jesus who he claims to be. And as you pursue that study, as you examine his claims, you'll find that he indeed is who he says he is. Listen to what Paul says. He says, if, I, if anybody has reason to brag, to have confidence in his own abilities and flesh. Listen to me. He said, I am circumcised, was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. I was born Jewish. Circumcised on the eighth day. My whole family was Jewish. I wasn't a proselyte. I wasn't just coming late in the, in the time to Judaism. I was born of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. 
Benjamin, that tribe is significant. Though it was a small tribe in the nation, it was very significant. Because, you see, the very first king of Israel was crowned and anointed out of the tribe of Benjamin. That when Israel would go out to battle, the tribe of Benjamin would be at the forefront, leading the armies. Small tribe, but significant. And Paul took much pride in being of the tribe of Benjamin. He pointed that as his heritage. He says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's just another way of saying you can't get any more Jewish than I am. He's kosher through and through. Paul and his family lived in, the, in a Greek cultural environment in a place called Cilicia. And in the midst of all of that cultural Greek environment, his family kept kosher. They slept Hebrew. They spoke Hebrew. They, they read Hebrew. They prayed Hebrew. They ate Hebrew. They did Hebrew. They were Hebrews through and through. They were Jews. And Jews par excellence. See what Paul's saying? He's saying if anybody, if anybody's saying that they've got to keep the law, if anybody's saying that this is what's necessary, they need to come talk to me because I've done it all. I can claim that incredible heritage, the wonderful heritage of being a Jew. And it is a wonderful heritage. He says, in regard to the law, I was a Pharisee, a member of the strictest religious sect in Israel. Nobody was stricter religiously than we were as the Pharisees. And indeed, in another place, he says that he was a Pharisee among the Pharisees, more strict than all the rest in his observance of the law. He says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. Ah, and you read the book of Acts, you see how Paul persecuted the church. Why did he persecute the church? You see, he believed, as did all Jews, that Jesus was a blasphemer. That he was a common criminal, he, he, he died the death on a cross. The law said he who dies on a cross like that is accursed. He can't possibly be the Messiah. But what the Jews missed was that Jesus died for us, that we were accursed. He died our death. And so they rejected Christ as the Messiah. Among other things, he wasn't the, the military and political deliverer of the day that they had hoped for, to deliver them from Rome. But you see, Paul believed in his heart that Jesus was a blasphemer. He deserved to die. And now he was going to go about his, his personal mission to stamp out this heretical sect that has arisen in his name and in his memory. You see, Paul doesn't know that Jesus is risen. He may have heard rumors, but he surely doesn't believe them. No way. Nobody has come back from the dead. And so Paul, in the midst of his violent, murderous persecutions of the church, is on his way to Damascus. Full of anger, righteous indignation against these blasphemers, determined to wipe them out. Damascus, the gates of the city are within sight, and all of a sudden, out of the clear blue sky, Paul's knocked on his can. 
the very next thing out of his mouth is, Who are you, sir? And then the words that came to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Whoa. <laughs> Wait a minute. Paul is blind. He doesn't go marching into Damascus full of fury and power. He's led into Damascus blind by the hand. Where for three days, remaining blind, he neither eats nor drinks. Imagine this. His whole world is turned upside down. Imagine yourself being Jewish. Persecuting the church. Absolutely convinced that you're right. And then all of a sudden, out of the clear blue sky, when you least expect it, you encounter Jesus Christ. Your whole life is turned upside down. He distorts all of your categories. It takes three days for Paul, blinded, to reason through, to think through, to come to grips, and to say, yes, Lord. Indeed, his words are, what would you have me do? Then God sends Ananias to pray for him. Paul receives his sight. He's baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And he's transformed. He's transformed. The people in Damascus can hardly believe it. No one trusts him. They think he's trying to infiltrate. But you see, Paul was zealous, persecuting the church, zealous for the law, zealous for the purity of Judaism. Understandably so, until he's confronted by Jesus. And he's convinced of Jesus' claims. Because he lives. Because he lives. He goes on to say that with respect to the law, that he was faultless. He kept God's law perfectly. Or so he thought he did, until you read the seventh chapter of Romans. And where he's awakened, I think that that was the time in which he had these three days to contemplate. Where he begins to see, the Holy Spirit shows him that he didn't keep the law perfectly. That over and over and over in his life, he was breaking the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, the only internal commandment. His life was so concerned with, concerned with keeping all the externals, having all the P's and Q's right, that he missed the real essential, the inward life. The inward life that only God could heal. Paul could go through the motions. He could keep the external law pretty well. Indeed, in his own word, he said he was faultless. But it's the internal life that he could do nothing about, that only God can do something about. And now listen to what him. Listen to what he has to say. In verse 7, he says, But whatever was to my profit, whatever I prided myself on, be it my Jewish heritage or my righteousness or my zealous in persecuting this church, whatever I thought I profited by, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Why? Because he lives. It's undeniable to Paul now. All of this stuff, it's gone. Everything he's lived his life for now is loss. 
And all he lives his life for now is for the sake of Christ. For Christ's sake. For his purposes. Listen to what he has to say. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. Now look what he says. My Lord. And that word Lord in the Old Testament is the same word that's translated Jehovah. God. If you understand your Greek and Hebrew. The surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, nothing compares. Would you say this man is radically transformed? You know why he is? Because he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus lives. He can't deny it. There is no other alternative for him. He's consumed with the hunger and the desire to know Christ. His Lord. He's not describing some passive acknowledgement of historical facts about Jesus. Oh yes, I know that Jesus lived. Oh yes, I know that he died on the cross. Oh yes, I know that he was resurrected. No. Paul is consumed with a hunger, with a desire, with a need to know Christ. Intimately. Not just to know about him. To know him. To fellowship with him. To have an intimate, personal relationship with him. Knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Nothing is worthwhile holding on to if there's Jesus to hold on to. Nothing. Nothing in this life holds a candle. Everything worthwhile doing pales in comparison to knowing Christ. He says, I consider all these things rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul understood the great, wonderful secret of losing to gain. Jesus said, the man who seeks to keep his life, hold on to his life, shall lose it. But the man who seeks to lose his life for my sake shall find it and shall live life magnificently and gloriously and live life eternally. You see, Paul discovered the secret. This life wasn't to be lived for his own purposes. He now understood the great secret that this life was lived to be lived for Christ's sake. And that as he was willing to lose his life for Christ's sake, then he would know Christ more. Losing our life means doing away with our pride and our ego. Being willing to nail that pride to the cross. Being willing to be humbled and bow. Being willing to become more like Jesus every day. You see, that's not the goal of this world, is it? That's not the goal of this life. Indeed, that's not the goal of many people who profess to be Christians. 
not to lose their lives. Think of the things most precious to you in your life. How hard and how firm you hold on to them. How those things mean security. How those things in your life mean value and purpose, bring meaning to you, and not Christ. How Christ has ceased to be the center sprocket, the center of your life, and he has become just a, a spoke on the wheel of your life. How you're the center. And all of us struggle with that. Paul understood that so intimately. He carried it to its logical conclusion. He said, I count all things rubbish, worth to be thrown on the trash heap in comparison to knowing Christ. I'll lose anything just so that I can know Christ. I can be intimate with him. The more we lose our life, the more of Christ we can gain. The more of those areas that we can let go of, the more Christ will come in and transform us more and more and more. As long as we hold on, he won't come in to transform He has to arrange events in our life to remove things from us because we don't let go willingly that he might come in and transform us because he loves us, because he lives. I want to know Christ, he says. Verse 10, And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Paul goes on to characterize this relationship that he longs for to be so intimate, so personal. Not only to know Christ, not only to know his power, to experience his power, but to be so personal, so given over to him, that he wants to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. That's quite different, isn't it? in the Christian life most of us are familiar with. We come up short. We want to know Christ, and we want to know his power. We want to know freedom from sin, and freedom from the effects of sin in our life, and that's glorious. But very few of us can, with Paul, say, to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Suffering is a fact of life, isn't it? But the Bible says that for the Christian, there's hope in the suffering that God takes the suffering and works it for our good. Not so for the person who doesn't believe. The person who doesn't believe suffers hopelessly. It doesn't work to their own good. Suffering only makes people, the non-believers, more bitter, more angry, more frustrated, more hopeless, and more empty. Not so for the believer. Not so for the person whose life is hid in Christ because he's got the Holy Spirit living in him who convinces him that God will use all things together for his good because he loves God because he's called according to God's purpose. His life is hid in Christ because he lives. Paul goes on and he says, that I may be like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from among the corpses, literally. The walking corpses. In this life, you can experience new life, resurrection from among all the walking dead. As well as resurrection to come. 
Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. You hear the singleness of purpose? I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. To hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well done. You ran the race. You persevered. You didn't cave in. And when you did, you came back and you allowed me to restore you to fellowship. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. See how gracious God is? How he wants to help? How he wants to restore? How he wants to heal? And he's made the avenue to that grace, Christ. And how people malign him. How people reject him because they won't take the time to examine his claims for themselves. I haven't taken hold of this, he says. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I forget what's behind. It doesn't matter what's behind. It doesn't matter what my life has experienced. You don't need to go back and dredge up all your past. For a while I used to think you had to until I began to really understand that Jesus is the healer. You don't need to go through all that stuff. You don't need to dredge it all up, all the horrible, painful memories. and You don't need to glory in your past or grieve in it. Paul says none of it makes any difference anymore. Forgetting what lies behind. I put it out of my mind. Why? Because I shift the focus now and I press on. I press on. Why? Because he lives. Because my hope is in him. Not in anything anybody else can do. Not anything I can do. I don't glory in myself or anybody else. I glory in him. My eyes are on him. I press on, forgetting what lies behind, Paul says. Look at Hebrews with me. Turn real quickly to the 12th chapter of Hebrews. This is a rich, rich passage. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 3. Just look at them real quickly. Listen to to the writer of Hebrews echo the same sentiment that Paul has just shared with us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, who's this cloud of witnesses he's talking about? All the people he's already talked about in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. When you get a minute, read that chapter. All the great heroes of faith. Since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, they're all watching and observing as we have our moment in the sun, as they did before us, as we run the race. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Each one of us has a race that God has marked out for us. And he says, throw off the things that hinder us. Get rid of them. Run that race and run it with perseverance. Look at verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Where do we fix our eyes? He's the goal. 
He's the prize, Jesus. Fix our eyes on him. How do you fix your eyes on Jesus? Get to know him. Get to know him. Draw close to him. As you increase your knowledge of Jesus, you'll be more and more convinced of who he is, and you'll fall deeper and deeper in love with him. Jesus is not like us, in the sense that to get to know us is not to like us. Familiarity breeds contempt. Not so with Jesus. The more you get to know him, the more you appreciate him and value him, the more you long to be like him, and the more you want him to move and help in your life. That's how you keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the Word. Study the Word. Get to know Jesus. Read those Gospels over and over and over. Watch Jesus. Listen to him. Observe him. Let him transform you as you undergo that process of abandonment to him, as you grow in your love, because you're learning to know him. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You don't have to crank your faith up. Most people operate under the misconception, under the poor notion that they've got to crank their faith up. You don't have enough faith. No. The issue is not that. The issue is you've taken your eyes off of Jesus. Peter is the most clear example. Do you remember when Jesus was walking on the water and said, Peter, come on out of here. <laughs> as long as Peter had his eyes on Jesus, he could walk on water. What happened the moment he took his eyes off of Jesus? And he cried out and said, what? Save me. That's not a story tale. That's a historical account. Recorded. Peter walked on water. Peter did the impossible because he kept his eyes on Jesus. And when he took his eyes off Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of the faith, he sank. It wasn't Peter cranking up his own faith or uncranking it. He took his eyes off of Jesus. That was the problem. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The place of honor. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Turn back with me to Philippians. We'll finish this passage. What a precious, precious passage. And Paul says in verse 15, All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. If you disagree, Paul says, it's no problem. I'm not going to argue with you. If you think you got it all together, if you think you're perfect, God will show you you're not. I'm not going to worry about that. He says, rather, only let us live up to what we have already attained. Live up to the light that God has given. And if you live up to that, he'll give you more light. He'll give you more light. You live up to that, he'll give you more light. He'll reveal more to you. He says, join with others in following my example, brothers. 
and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Follow after, watch after the mature ones. Look at their example. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul says, because he lives, because he lives, don't live a life of carnality. Don't let your life deny him. And so, in so doing, you become an enemy of the cross. Don't just pay lip service to him. Because he lives. He says, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their body led. They're subject to unbridled appetites and lusts. They have no control. They're given over to the body, not spirit-led people. He says, and their glory is in their shame. They don't glory in Christ. These people glory in their immorality. They brag about it. They, they're excited by it. They think this is the only reason to live. Not for Christ's sake. Their mind is on earthly things. The whole focus of their life, not on, it's not on Christ, it's on earthly things. Though they profess to be believers, their mind is on earthly things. Their destiny, Paul says, is destruction. Because he lives, our mind is on him. Our focus is on him. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, not on this earth. We're passing through, folks. We're sojourners. We're just here, biding time, working to save people from hell. Do you remember that movie, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers? That popped into my mind yesterday for some reason while I was thinking about this passage, and it dawned on me that we're an invasion of spirit snatchers. <laughs> we are. We're a colony of special people on this earth called to reach out to other people who are walking around in the darkness and bring them into the light. And say, let me tell you about Jesus if you just take a few minutes and listen. If you just evaluate. If you set aside your bias and just look. Let me bring you into the light. He'll fill your life. He'll quiet your fears. He'll calm your anxieties. If you keep your eyes on him. He says, we... We are citizens of heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Oh, the great culmination. The transformation of this body, I don't know about you, but i got a spirit inside of me that's alive that's excited, and that is hindered by this stinking body. This body that's slow. This body that's lazy. This body that likes to sleep too much and eat too much. I want a new body. I want a new body that's going to match my spirit, that won't slow my spirit down. That's what I want. And the Bible promises me that. 
promises me a new body, a new life. Oh, I can hardly wait. Lastly, Paul says, and I say this to you, therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Why? Because he lives. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Father, Father in heaven, we glorify your holy name, for you have made us free in Christ. That one final, eternal sacrifice that wipes away all of our sin and all of our guilt. Lord, you have made us right with you because we put our faith in Jesus. That name above all other names. Lord, as we survey history, all the great musicians, all the great artists, all the great and gifted people of this world have extolled the name of Jesus. No other name. No other name except the name Jesus. Lord, we extol that same name this morning. We celebrate this great resurrection day. And Lord, indeed, every day for us is a resurrection day. Lord, every day we as Christians start our day not at the foot of the ladder, but on the top rung of the ladder because of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Father, we plead your blood, the blood of your Son, on any person this morning that doesn't know you. God, I pray that by your Spirit, you would speak to hearts today. As you spoke to the Apostle Paul's heart, as he was Saul of Tarsus, an angry man, viciously intent on destroying your church. But Lord, how you so powerfully spoke to him on that day, on that road to Damascus. Lord, many people are the same in this world today. But they're afraid. And they know not why they're afraid. They're afraid that their little world and the things that they trust in are so threatened. But Lord, help them see that Jesus only wants to fulfill their life and to make their life all that he can make it be. If you've come here today and as you walk through the door, you, you weren't a Christian. You weren't a person who was willing to, with Paul, say that you desire nothing but the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. But somehow between the time you came in and right now, you've come to a place of decision. If there's resistance in your heart, if you're afraid, I want to encourage you. God loves you. He wants to do great things in your life. You can trust your life into his hands. I want to invite you this morning to pray a short prayer. It's not so much the words that count, but it's the sentiment in your heart. The Bible says that God looks on the heart. 
because it's only he and you that knows what's inside. Pray this prayer if you want to give your life to Jesus, if you want to be assured of eternal life, if you want to be freed from the grips of sin in your life, if you want to know the sweet fellowship that you can have with God through Christ, if you want to be right with God and be convinced, pray this prayer. Jesus, please save me. Jesus, please save me. That's it. That's all you have to pray. And just mean it in your heart. And Jesus will save you. Now I want to invite those of you that prayed that prayer to share with the rest of us. Just let us know that that we have new brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. I just want to invite you just to stand. If you prayed that prayer, if you said, Jesus, please save me, just stand right now. Would you please? Praise the Lord. What's your name, hon? Shelly, God bless you. What's your name, sir? David, God bless you. What's your name back there? All right, brother. Your name? What is it? Randy, God bless you. What's your name? Eric? All right. And your name? Frank? Rick? All right. What's your name? Anna? God bless you, Anna. All right. Anybody else? Anybody else? Give your life to Christ. You cannot stand unless you really mean it, because it takes that to overcome your pride and your ego, doesn't it? And once you stand, oh, it's so freeing. We love you. Anybody else? Anybody else want to give their life to Jesus this morning? You prayed that prayer. Let the Lord fill you with his grace and his love. Anybody else? All right, let's welcome our new brothers and sisters. <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.